you would uh, please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, the book of Hebrews chapter 4. If you need a Bible, uh, get the attention of the ushers who are making their way down the aisle, and they'll get a Bible to you marked to the uh, appropriate page. If you're using one of the Bibles that uh, we use here at Community, it's page 840, 840. As uh, Pastor Larry said, our family has been with you guys just over a, a year now. And uh, it's been really wonderful to get to know you all and to invest our lives here at Community. And we really appreciated the love that we've received here. We really, uh, it's just been a real blessing for us. Uh, I've known Pastor Ken from seminary, and so having the opportunity to come down here and uh, worship and just see how the Lord is working here at Community and through uh, through you all. It's just been a really amazing experience for our family. Uh, if this is your first time here at CBC, I want to say welcome. And uh, also, rest assured, Pastor Ken will be back next week. So don't let my message keep you away. Uh, before we begin, let's ask God for his assistance as we seek to open his word and see what he has for us today. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for this opportunity to come together as a church family, to open your word, to hear what you would have for us. We pray that uh, you would help us to focus our our hearts and minds on you, on your word. Lord, we pray for your grace and mercy, and uh, we just ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do we do the things we do? I don't mean the little idiosyncrasies we have or the little habits, the little weird things that we do. Uh, I'm talking about the the large, the big motivations for the major choices in life that we we make. For instance, you may decide to pursue a more healthy lifestyle. As you start working out, you're running, you're exercising, at some point you get to a stage where things get difficult. Time constraints physical pains, sheer laziness, and you're tempted to stop. I've been trying to do a little jogging, and uh, I only only do about two miles uh, a day. But uh, I had this starting to get a pain in my leg, and it makes you want to, like, all right, maybe I'll just take it easy for a while. But if you're doing it because for a good reason, because the doctor maybe told you, hey, you got to get exercise, you have this health condition, and if you don't keep up with exercise... You you may die or, you know, your health is going to get really bad. Your thoughts begin to run to your family, to your loved ones, and, you, you, you know, your desire to not die needlessly. So you find a way to keep exercising if it's hard, even if it's hard to do. Maybe it's your job. Many people work day after day at a job that if they had their choice, they'd rather not be at. But they show up faithfully day after day, year after year, because they are able to focus on something bigger than that job, bigger than the present circumstances they find themselves in. The book of Hebrews that we're looking at today, the book, uh, it seeks to clarify the why for its readers, the why they're doing the things they're doing. You see, the original readers were on a path when they were quickly discovering was not exactly what they had envisioned. They had, what they had originally thought of. You see, the original readers of this letter, 
were likely a blend of Jews and non-Jews at some point in the first century with differing differing levels of religious understanding. Many of them would have been familiar with religion, that is religion in quotes, and so they would have some notions of what they were getting themselves into as they joined this new faith. This group of Christians didn't have the Christian resources we have today. They didn't have the internet with all the resources, the books, the writers, the blogs, people like Tim Challies. They didn't have any of that. But they had two really good resources for them. They had the Old Testament scriptures, and they had a loving and caring pastor. And this pastor, the writer of the book that we're looking at today, cared deeply for them. His love for them drove them drove him to write down this sermon, the letter we now call the book of Hebrews, because he wanted to make sure that they would finish the course that they had set out on. You see, he was concerned that they were getting discouraged. Perhaps they were beginning to look back at their old lives because of their present circumstances, present difficulties. And by looking backwards, by putting their, setting their minds on what they came from, they set up that they may potentially wander from their, their Christian faith. The temptation to wander wasn't because they were looking for something new and exciting, but it was the combined result of being pressured by the ungodly culture that they found themselves in, but also their inner struggle with sin. And because of that, because of these two things, he was burdened for them to recognize that the Christian faith, and in particular, the person of Jesus Christ was far superior to anything that they could turn back to. But since he was their pastor and he deeply cared for them, he also had some hard truths for them. Turning away from Christ to the previous manner of life was not not only turning to something deeply inferior, it was in a very real sense a one-way trip. The author tells them in chapter 10, of the book of Hebrews. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? So his goal then and my goal today is not to scare a person into thinking that they may be lost, but rather to keep us focused on what lies ahead. Turning back is not an option. Pressing forward is the only way that we don't have to struggle with discouragement. God has already provided what we need, and this takes us to our present verses. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let's read together. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. These verses capture the heart of the whole letter. Our author is at once laying out the foundation of their faith, 
the great high priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says that they have, they have and we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Our high priest identifies with us. He's in a place that he can't help us and comforts us on this difficult road. So in light of that truth, in light of who we have, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he gives us two commands here in this section. Hold firmly to your faith, that is, grasp tightly those things you have confessed about Christ, and and secondly, have confidence to approach the throne of grace. And we need God's grace because of the struggles we have, both inward and outward. And this is the pattern of much of the letter. As we go, if you work your way through the book of Hebrews, the young adults and I and we, us have been working through this book of Hebrews together, and so we've been kind of trying to understand uh, what the author is doing here. And so what he he tends to do is he lays out this great truth about Jesus, and then he tells you to do something because of that. The message that Jesus brings is better than what we have, was given before, given through the Old Testament saints. So listen to it. Jesus' faithfulness is better than what was given, is better, excuse me, is unparalleled in the Bible. So don't harden your heart against his message. The priesthood of Jesus is of a greater magnitude than any other. So draw near and don't fall away. And so let's flesh out this section together and see what God has to say to us. I say in Roman numeral one in your handout that the road of life is difficult. The road of life is difficult. It doesn't take long for us to realize that life is hard. I sometimes joke with my three-year-old, you know, when he's watching a video and he's watched it now for like five times in a row and he wants to keep watching it. And I'll turn the video off and I'll say, you know, he's, he's throwing a fit because he wants to keep watching it. And I'll say, you know, life is hard. Life is hard for all of us, you know. <laughs> And, of course, I'm making light of the situation because he's ready to completely lose it and we're all ready to completely lose it. But the statement resonates for most of us because life is hard. Life is difficult. Sometimes it's the little things. And I should say, my son is great, so I don't want (laughs) to... Sometimes it's the little things. The washing machine breaks at exactly the worst time. We're working on our car, working around the house, and and a bolt is rounds off. And so now we got to figure out how we're going to get this bolt out. The diaper leaks at exactly the wrong moment. But sometimes it's bigger issues. We visit the doctor because of one issue that we have and find out something worse is going on. I remember when I was about 25, my dad went to the hospital because he, he had a cough he couldn't get rid of. And he got diagnosed with uh, lung cancer. So sometimes you get news you know, that you weren't expecting. Sometimes life is difficult because of the choices we make. We make bad choices. We make errors in judgment. Sometimes we're just too lazy. We don't make any choices. But life is also hard because of things outside of our control. As I highlighted with the original recipients of this letter, they were struggling largely because of things that were outside of their control. But God does not leave us in our struggles. He does not leave us to figure it out on our own. So let's look at the text and see what he has to say about the road of life. I say under point A that we struggle because of our frailties. We struggle because of our frailties. Verse 15 says, 
that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. We read something like that, and we're tempted to read and understand the idea of empathize or sympathize in connection with the term translated weakness. We have these two ideas, weakness and empathy. And we, would, we were tempted to read it in the same way and understand it in the same way that we would have sympathy or feel bad for, for instance, if a kid fell off their bike. You know, you're watching a little kid and they topple over. I was driving the other day and I was watching a kid go down his uh, driveway and he hit, got to the end of the driveway and it just fell over. And the grandparents were just kind of looking at him like... But, you know, you kind of feel bad. You see something like that, you think, oh, poor kid. Or maybe a soldier, you have a, you know, a soldier you know, or somebody you come across who has been wounded in combat and has this injury now that is going to be with them for the rest of life. You have sympathy for this person. Weakness, as commonly understood then, is equated with physical in- injury or physical weakness. But what the Bible is talking about here when it mentions our weaknesses, our frailties, in verse 15, is our propensity towards sin. It's not just any sin or a general sin. It's not the fact that we have a sin nature and that we keep slipping up or making bad mistakes. But the specific issue is our tendency towards wandering. A sin that manifests manifests itself by drifting away from God. So this is what he's talking about when he says we have frailties. We have this tendency towards wandering, tendency to, to walk away from God. And this is confirmed here by the statement later in verse 15 that our high priest was without sin. As opposed to us, Jesus was singularly focused on obeying and trusting God in all aspects of his life. But it, it may seem like we're splitting hairs here. You may be thinking, well, can't it just be both? Can't, can't he have sympathy for us because, you know, I'm maybe, you know, I have these frailties, I'm weak, but I also wander from, have a tendency to wander from God or tendency towards sin. But the answer is tied up with the purpose of the letter. As we discussed, remember, the author is concerned with the readers finishing the course and pressing towards their heavenly goal. If they drop out, if they turn back, it's not because they weren't strong enough. It's not because they had some physical illness or mental uh, weakness or they weren't equipped correctly. It's because they willfully turned their back on God and went the other direction. And it's the same for us sitting here today. When we decide that things are too tough or the circumstances aren't to our likening with regard to the Christian life and we tap out, we take some time off, we can't blame God for that decision. Now, if we turn back to, if you don't have to turn there, but if you, we were to turn back to Hebrews chapter 3 and look at verses 16 through 19, we can see this fact. It says, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? Those same people who were enslaved to the Egyptians, whose lives were miserable, who wished every day to be freed from that slavery. Once they were freed, it was these same people who rebelled against God. He goes on to say in verse 17 of chapter 3, And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? Those people who wished with all their hearts to be free, to be free of that slavery, 
once they were free, rebelled and sinned against God. Wandering around in the Sinai desert wasn't what they imagined when they were freed. And they began to grumble and complain. Can you imagine the situation? You know, you're, you're in this slavery, this harsh labor, and Moses is ready to, you know, you, God has promised he's going to lead you out, and then you're out, and then you're wandering around the desert, and these people are like, this is, this is what we're freed to, huh? And so their mind begins to wander. They're not holding to the promise. They're looking at their circumstances, thinking, this isn't what I was expecting when you said you were, I was going to be free. I was going to enter God's rest. They began to think about the good times they had back in Egypt, how it seemed better than what they were going through now. Even if it was false in their mind, even if what they were remembering was not really the case, they began thinking back about, oh man, it was better in Egypt. At least we weren't wandering around the desert. Remember those good times? We do the same thing. Remember those good times we had as an unbeliever? Living carefree, living for ourselves? And now as a Christian, life is hard. It isn't what we had planned. It isn't how we would have liked it. And so begin looking backwards. Maybe it's not memories of your previous life. Maybe, you know, you didn't grow up as an, you know, you grew up as a Christian, so you don't have those memories. But sooner or later, you're going to run across people who aren't Christians, co-workers, neighbors. The lives of those people, they be, it begins to look good. You're doing all you can to follow the Lord. But the people around you are living for today, living for themselves, and having what seems like a great time doing it. So we struggle due to our sin nature, our propensity to wander from God, and we also struggle due to our temptations that are all around us. We struggle because of our expectations of what the Christian walk should be don't exactly line up with what God has said in his word. Our propensity towards sin and the opportunities and reminders that are all around us mean that we're weak in a biblical sense. So we need compassion. We need help because of these frailties. We also need help because of where we are. We need help because we find ourselves in a sin-affected world. And so I say in letter B that we struggle because of our circumstance. We struggle because of our circumstance. Verse 14 informs us that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. And we can take a look around this morning, and no offense to you guys because you all look great, but we realize we're not in heaven, right? We ourselves haven't passed through the heavens as it says Jesus has in verse 14. We're still sitting here this morning in Trenton, Michigan. He is there, but we are here. Our present circumstance means that we are still part of this world. Jesus prayed in John seventeen fifteen, saying, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus is telling us that it is his plan for us to be here, to be part of this world. Looking again at chapter 3 of Hebrews, the Bible highlights the situation of Moses and the people whom he led out of Egyptian captivity. The Israelites had been enslaved there for generations, yearning for freedom. The nation of Israel in, in Egypt had continued to grow and grow, and this compelled the Egyptian 
uh, enslavers to despise and fear them. So they, they worked them hard. If you were to turn back to the book of Exodus, it tells us in chapter 1 of Exodus, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor. And it's into this context that God raises up Moses to, to lead his people out of Egypt and into the rest that he promised them. The book of Hebrews in the, in the second part of uh, chapter 3, verse 2, states that Moses was faithful in all his house. The picture of a faithful Moses is contrasted with the unfaithful generation of people that left Egypt. If we read Hebrews 3, 7, we read that as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years. Who, who tested and tried me for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. As I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared in my, an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. The same people who desired freedom and saw God working miracles amongst them complained and were bitter as soon as they got into the desert. We have to remember their situation. They weren't just dumped out to the desert and left to wander on their own. They were had Moses speaking to him on a daily basis. They saw God's manifestation in the cloud and the pillar of fire. On a daily basis, they would remember the, the miracles that God had worked against the Egyptians. They complained as soon as they got in the desert. They complained about their circumstances. They complained against Moses' leadership. And ultimately, they complained against God. God's will for those people was that they enter his rest, but also, importantly, that they go through this period of testing in the desert. So he wanted them to enter his rest, but he also wanted them to be in the desert. They didn't go straight to the promised land. And for Christians today, for you and I, normally God's will isn't that we go straight to heaven after being saved. We're here in a fallen world, struggling with the everyday stuff of life. We have to go to work. We have to learn to get along with each other. Pay taxes, obey the government. The list goes on. Hebrews 11 tells us about the saints in the Old Testament, saying there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Our author reminds his readers in chapter 10 as well, remember those early days after you had received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side who were those treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. 
We live out our lives in a sin-cursed and sin-affected world. If we just had to deal with those things alone, it might be fine. But we have to deal with all those difficulties and still face difficulties that are rising from our faith. We try to live out our faith in a workplace, but we're faced with coworkers who don't share our faith, our worldview. We sit in college classrooms. We want to represent Christ, but we're surrounded by a culture that is hostile to the claims of absolute truth that the Bible takes. We try to raise our kids in such a way that they grow to be God-fearing adults, but we work against schools that are hostile to Christian expressions of faith. In a very real way, there's been a turn in American culture so that anti-Christian behavior and lifestyles are not just tolerated, but must be celebrated and overtly displayed. And this is very much the world that the original readers of the letter faced. So there's some, some parallels there with their circumstances and our circumstances. So we have a sin problem that we have to deal with. We have difficult circumstances all around us that are often outside of our control that we need to deal with. People don't keep pushing or trying or struggling without a compelling reason. And for Christians, for those who are recipients of God's grace, that reason is given by God. So I say in Roman numeral 2, Christians possess the resources they need to finish. Christians possess the resources they need to finish. As I noted in the introduction, the underlying basis for the following command, for the commands that we have in this section, is our great high priest, Jesus. And we need to make sure that we all understand why he is so great, particularly as it applies here. The Bible highlights two things about Jesus here in this section, and we need to understand both. It presents Jesus as our high priest and Jesus as the Son of God. He highlights these things because as our high priest, Jesus identifies with us. He can sympathize with our frailties, but he also provides the access we need directly to God. As the Son of God, we are, sh- we are shown his faithfulness and his deity. And so these concepts undergird all the commands that, that he gives us. They make possible the resources we are given to persevere on this road of life. The writer here is burdened for for our readers. He wants them to make full use of all the resources available available to them in order to finish the course. He wants them to not trust in themselves, but rather to seek out those things God has provided them in his goodness and mercy. In other words, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that success in the Christian life is dependent upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the health of that relationship is manifested in two distinct ways. The first of those ways I say in point A is that we must remember those things we were taught. We must remember those things we were taught. The second half of verse 14 tells us that we must hold firmly to the faith we profess. Other versions of the Bible may say something along the lines of hold fast to our confession. We need to hold firmly, to grasp tightly, to cling to the faith we profess. If we remember one of the underlying issues facing this particular community, it helps us to see why the author tells his readers to hold fast to their confession. The original recipients were struggling with spiritual lethargy. 
He says in 2.1, we must pay attention more carefully, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. He says later in the letter, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. The author repeatedly tells his readers that they must cling to those things they have learned, those things they were taught, particularly about Christ. And we need to understand what exactly those things are. What exactly does the Bible refer to when it says, hold fast to our confession? But first, we need to connect this point to the previous ones. We need to make sure we understand why why the readers and us, by extension, are either in danger of or we may already be drifting. If you've been here at CBC for the uh, Discovering God Hour over the past few weeks, we've been learning that the sanctification process is a lifelong one. There's no instantaneous victory over sin. We do battle against our sinful desires as long as we, we are here in this life. In Romans 7:21 through 23, we read, So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. The Bible is testifying to the fact of this inner struggle with the sin nature. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we read, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This struggle against sinful desires is a real one, and it's one that over time can make us weary if we don't have the right view of the battle. When we either think that we can't, we can have instantaneous success if we just try harder, if we just apply ourselves more, if we just want it badly enough, we set ourselves up for failure. The other way in which we view the battle incorrectly is that we fool ourselves into thinking that we can actually win the war against sin in this lifetime. As we read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And so here's the issue. We're going about our life. We have this particular sin struggle, particular issue that we're, we're struggling with. Imagine it's anger. We're driving down Ford Street. Someone cuts us off, does something crazy, and we get really upset. We do something dumb, something sinful, some you know outburst, some gesture. Now we realize that we messed up. We think, okay, I, I need to stop that. I need to deal with that. But since it's Ford Street, it happens again five minutes down the road. Someone else does something crazy and you're thinking, and it's all over again. It starts all over. The sinful anger begins to well up. And because you're thinking incorrectly about how to deal with sin, you get frustrated over your lack of growth. You get frustrated that you can't get control of this sin and you just keep having these anger outbursts. And you start beating yourself up. And so you begin to drift. We drift because the Christian walk is tough and we're not seeing the growth we thought we should. You begin to think that the people you come across on the road who drive like maniacs, maybe they have the right idea. I need to get somewhere. I need to get to church on Sunday morning, and these people are getting in my way. And I'm sick of thinking about other people, and in particular about my relationship with God and how my anger keeps affecting that. And all along the way, you begin to pick up worldly patterns. 
worldly behavior. And by worldly, I mean those patterns of behavior that characterize life outside of Christ. And so you're drifting. And for the author of Hebrews, this drifting, it leads to spiritual rebellion. Hebrews 3.8 says, and he's quoting the Old Testament here in 3.8, Do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The pattern then that we see in the Bible is that sin that is not dealt with correctly leads to a hardening of hearts, which ultimately leads to rebellion. And the problem with rebellion is that it shows or manifests the true nature of a person's heart. And that is why God says in 3.8, They shall never enter my rest. And that, my friends, that's a sobering statement. We don't miss the connection we're making here. Sin that leads to a hard heart leads to rebellion. And God swears that that rebellious person shall not, shall not enter his heavenly rest. This is why the Bible says in Hebrews 4.14, Hold firmly to the faith we profess. And now we need to answer, what, is, what does this statement mean, the faith we profess? What does faith we profess mean? Here I think the other translations are a bit more helpful in understanding what the author is driving at. Other transla- translations translate this phrase, faith we profess, as our confession. What the Bible is telling us here in the immediate context is that we must hold tightly to our confession that Jesus is our Lord, our Savior. In other words, keep your commitment to Christ in light of your present circumstances. When you were saved, you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. We can get a further glimpse of what this means by looking at other confessions in the New Testament. In Mark 1.11, God the Father speaking from heaven about the Son. You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Peter confessing in Matthew 16.16, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Martha confessing Jesus in John eleven twenty seven. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. So confessing Christ is to recognize who he is, the Son of God. Since he is the Son of God who now serves as our great high priest, we have an advocate in heaven who intercedes on our behalf. Holding to our confession means to focus our hearts and minds on Christ to trust him and what he says in his word about us and about our circumstances. We keep ourselves from spiritually drifting by holding fast to our confession of Christ. And the practical reason why we remember our confession, why we're told to focus on Christ, is because of what we read in verse 15. Because it says, We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Christ was tempted in every way. He has been tempted and tested to the same extent as we were, as we are. Yet he never succumbed to that temptation. He never failed the test. And it's precisely because he never failed that we want him for help when we are tempted. You see, we often think that because Jesus was sinless, He doesn't really understand our sin, our sin struggle. He doesn't know what it's like to be trapped in in a sin of sexual desire, a sin of anger. He was sinless. But the, the Bible is clear here that he was tempted to the same extent that we were. Maybe not the exact same type of sin, but definitely to the fullest extent possible. 
And so he knows what it's like to feel the full weight of temptation and to resist it. For us, when we struggle with a particular temptation, at some point we fail. Not all, if you have this sin struggle that you've been had for a long time, at some point you resist, you may fail. Groups like uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, are helpful for those struggling with alcohol addiction precisely because when you know the particular struggle, you can relate. Jesus knows our most fundamental struggle because he was victorious and he wants to help. And so success in the Christian life, on the one hand, depend is dependent upon our clinging to the confession to our confession of Christ. The other half of the equation, I say in letter B, that we must communicate with our Father. We must communicate with our Father. In verse 16, we read, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. The other way in which we keep spiritual drift at bay is to approach the throne of grace. But in order to do that, we have to understand what is meant by this throne of grace, what is meant by this phrase. The use of this phrase, throne of grace, is synonymous with the throne of God. Since true grace comes only from God, the throne of grace is another way of saying the throne where grace is dispensed. So approaching the throne of grace means approaching God's throne. And we, I think we instinctively recognize that to approach God's throne is not, some, is not meant in a literal fashion. In other words, go somewhere and physically approach God's throne. So we read these words sitting here today and immediately recognize this is something we do in a spiritual sense. But if we remember the original audience and how they would have understood it, we can get a better understanding ourselves on why the author tells his readers to do this act. The reference to approach God's throne would have resonated with the original audience in such a way that they would have immediately thought about the Jewish religious system that was in place during that time. Remember, I said the audience, the original readers of this letter, were made up of mostly Jews and non-Jews. So a lot, the lion's share of the readers were, were Jews, former Jews. So up until the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans, Jewish religious life result, revolved around the temple located in Jerusalem. It was here that God's presence was manifested among his people centrally in a room in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was here that only the one high priest could enter once a year and only for the purposes of offering a sacrifice for atonement for the sins of the people. God would, following the offering, show grace in the form of mercy to the people. So when our author refers to the throne of grace or that place where grace is shown, this is where their minds would have gone. But it wasn't, the image wasn't meant to stop there, just on that place, in a physical location. Because the author mentions the great high priest in verse 14, and the throne of grace in verse 16. So the readers would have taken these two images. They would have been reminded that this is the place where grace was previously off limits, except for the high priest. But now, because of our great high priest, Jesus, we have constant and unfiltered access to God. Bringing it together then. What we are being urged to do here is to approach God spiritually in prayer. Because of the access given us through Christ, we need to, as the Bible says in Philippians 4, not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer 
and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The Bible is telling us to seek God in prayer, not because it makes us feel good, or because like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, there's a chance that we might be heard. The Bible tells us to seek God in prayer and to do so with confidence because God desires that we do so. He wants to hear from us. Prayer demonstrates that you are relying upon God and not yourself. And so success in the Christian life is, on one hand, dependent upon our clinging to our confession of Christ, and on the other, our constant and confident prayer life to God. And so as we wrap up, the question raised here drives us to ask, who do we go to when we're struggling? In an ultimate sense, there really only exists two options, right? Either myself or to God. Do I trust what I think is the answer? Do I deal with the circumstances that I'm facing in my own strength? Do you turn back because it seems easier? Or do we go forward? A way made possible by Jesus Christ. When the road gets tough, are you seeking out God in prayer? Are you setting your mind on the richness of Jesus Christ? For the Christians, these are the ways in which God has ordained for us to move forward. I also want to address those of you who might be sitting here and don't know Jesus as Savior. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, then I would urge you to cry out to him to be reconciled to God. You can do this right where you are. Confess to him that you're a sinner in need of help and that you need to trust and you want to trust him as Lord and Savior. Don't neglect the grace and mercy offered through Jesus Christ alone. I say finally, in our take-home truth, then, God has provided the best resource possible for his people, his son. God has provided the best resource possible for his people, his son. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you. We thank you that you loved us enough to save us. We thank you that you loved us so much that you didn't just save us and leave us where we were, but you promised to transform us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray today that you would help us to cling to him, to hold fast to those things we know about him and you, and also that our hearts would respond to the command to seek you in prayer in all things. We pray that you would guide us this week, that you would use us to glorify yourself, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.